Hey, welcome. This is Pastor Tyler Whitcomb. I just want to say on behalf of the leadership of Fos Church, we are so glad that you're checking out the Fos Church podcast. At Fos, we believe in the authority of God's Word and the ability it has through the power of the Holy Spirit to change the hearts of mankind and to mold and shape its readers into the image of Christ. And so we pray that these messages would do just that, that you would hear God's word and be changed by it. Lastly, our encouragement is, if you do not belong to a local Bible-believing church, that you would do so, because a podcast will never allow you to serve the purpose that God has called you into belonging to the church. Well, good morning, church. It's great to be in the house of the Lord with you all. Uh, if you are new to, uh, to Fos Church or this is your first time in a while, just want to say welcome uh, as well as we started a brand new series last week that we entitled Living Hope. And Living Hope's a 10-week series walking through the book of First Peter. And uh, that's one of the major themes, Living Hope. And what Peter is doing is he's offering a living hope to these churches that are scattered over dispersion of suffering. Um, and he lists out all those various areas of where they're at. And, and while he does that, we, we want to point out to the fact that, hey, life wasn't happy-go-lucky for these Christians, these followers of the way. That it was actually really hard and difficult and maybe a lot like where you and I are today. Right? This is 53, 54 AD, roughly. Christians aren't getting burned at the stake yet. They're, they're not getting sawn in two. They're not getting fed to the lions. But they're becoming a problem. They're becoming a problem for this Roman Empire, this Roman government, and, and um, they're starting to be uh, avoided. They're, they're the roadblock to avoid. And, and so, you know, they see this progression. They see this suffering, you know, building. And Peter comes in and he reminds them of something beautiful. He reminds them of the life that they have in Jesus Christ. And when everything else is around you, is fading away. And that song that we just sang, you know, this everlasting, your, your love, it never fails, it never fades away. What a beautiful truth that we get to sing that reality, is it not? Um, and last week, as I began the service, I said, hey, this is a 10-week series. Peter's writing it. You know, I believe Peter's the author of First Peter. And I said, but because we've done so much Pauline literature uh, in our time, you know, with you, I said, there might be a time where I say, hey, Paul says this. I don't actually believe Paul's the author. Just a, it's just a misspeak. And then it happened no more than 10 minutes into the message. So I apologize to you this week over and over in my head. I'm just saying, Peter, 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 Peter. Like, I'm just like, it's Peter that wrote this. Um, so I'll try not to make that mistake again, but please be gracious with me. Um, you know what I found was interesting, though? I had this thought probably on Wednesday was I got up and we started this new series, Living Hope, and the idea was, uh, as we mapped out our sermon series for the year, we typically think about maybe certain holidays that might fall in certain places, but I, the, this idea of living hope, the thought wasn't, oh, the election's on Tuesday, let me preach on where you can find hope. We weren't even, it wasn't even on our radar back in like January or whenever we mapped this series out. But I started thinking about it on Wednesday because guess what? I woke up on Wednesday and guess what I saw on Facebook? The source of all truth. 
But I woke up and I saw, this is what I saw. I saw a lot of people on my feed, because it's about 50-50. Um, saw a lot of people that were really excited about how, to, what happened on Tuesday. And then I saw a lot of people that were devastated. And I started thinking back to this series, this passage, what Peter's writing, and it's being a living hope. And here's what I thought about it. And, and, and I'll just be frank with you. Like, I woke up on Wednesday, and there were some things I wanted to know about. I'm like, my wife's right there. I said, Karen, what, what happened? You know, like, how did, the, how did the proposals turn out? You know, like, that's, I wanted to know. You know, that, that stuff impacts our society, impacts the world that we live in. And so it's, it's important. It was on my mind. Um, but here's what I found interesting when I looked at how excited people were and how devastated some people were. Was for the people that were overly excited, people that, you know, not just excited, but the people that said, hey, the day's been won. And then people that now were only discouraged but felt defeated. It, you know what? I'm not getting into all of it today, but like, hey, if your political candidate wins, you might feel some level of excitement. That's okay. If your candidate loses, you might feel discouraged. That's okay. But when we start allowing our emotions to swing fully to one area or the other to say, hey, the day has been won or I'm defeated, it's okay as a Christian to feel somewhat discouraged. Right? When Paul, when Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says, I'm perplexed. If, if Paul's perplexed at times, you will be too. But Paul says, I'm perplexed, but I'm not crushed. I'm not crushed. We don't allow ourselves as Christians to get crushed. Why? Because of the living hope that we have. And we don't put our hope entirely in a political figure, right? Like, look, what we saw in our text as I read it, and we'll get into it more later, but we set our hope fully on Jesus. Hope fully, separated words. And so that's where, that's where the day gets won. And so I started thinking about, okay, for the person that believes the day's been won, they have a misplaced hope. And for the person that's crushed, they have a misplaced hope. Right? We, we as Christians, we fall somewhere in the middle there. Right? You, there might be times where you're, hey, our person won. We're feeling good about that. Or our person lost and we're feeling somewhat discouraged. You can be there. You can, those are real feelings. And, and we ought not to, to demonize those feelings as they're real. But that's what... Peter wasn't, when he's writing this letter, he's penning this letter, he wasn't thinking about living hope being some sort of political figurehead. He wasn't saying, hey, there's our guy, there's our hope, let's place it all there. No, that's not what he's writing. He's pointing actually to a person, and it's Christ. To these people that are feeling some sort of way. And maybe you're sitting in here and you say, hey, you know what? The reality is I fall into one of those two categories, though. Maybe you say, hey, I fall into one of those categories where, hey, I thought the day was one. Or maybe you say, hey, I'm crushed. Do I not love Jesus enough? Is my faith not valid? Is there something wrong with me? I'd like to encourage you this morning and say, hey, if that's you, if you fall into one of those categories, you're not lesser of a Christian. You're not lesser of a Christian because uh, I, I was, even in our men's study on, on Wednesday morning, I was remembering the old hymn, um, come thou fount. And the idea is prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. All these various temptations that we have in our lives, these things that offer some level of security or some form of excitement, they're, they're temporary things. And, and you know what temporary things are really good at? They're really good at being sexy. 
They're really good at being alluring. They're really good at tempting you into believing that they're offering something that they can't actually offer. And so for us at times, you know, I even think about Peter. In Matthew 14, he's, Jesus invites him out. You might think I'm rabbit trailing, but Jesus invites P, uh, Peter out onto the boat, and Peter walks on the water. And his eyes are fixed on God. And, and that really, that should be the Christian life. In the midst of storms, now our eyes are fixed on God. But if you read that story closely, Matthew 14, do you know what the thing that gets Peter to, to, to fall? Was that he said it, so he saw the wind. Any of y'all ever see the wind? You can't see wind. I'm not a scientist, but I can tell you that. You can't see wind. You can see the effects of wind. You can see waves rolling. You can see trees blowing, but you can't actually see wind. He saw the wind and he fell, and he began sinking. How easy it is for us to get our eyes off of Jesus. And so you're not lesser of a Christian at times when you look to a figure that you think is gonna help offer you some level of security and hope, but ultimately we know from the word of God that only Jesus offers a hope that's imperishable that never fails, that's something you can always hold on to, that Jesus alone satisfies. And so these temporary things, as sexy as they can be at times, they don't satisfy, only Jesus does that. And that's how we saw last week Peter open up. He said how you exiles, are you foreigners? This isn't your home. Best summarized is this. There is no home for the living in the land of the dead. There is no home for the living in the land of the dead. You know, I referenced Psalm 27 when, when the psalmist David says, for I would have despaired, Psalm 27, for I would have despaired had I not believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. If he didn't have some future hope in the land of the living, the kingdom of God, man, if this world was all that there was, if this, the, the earthly kingdoms was it, he said, man, I would look around, I would see all of them, and I would say, I have no hope. I would have despaired. I would have been crushed had I not believed that God was gonna be faithful to his promises, that there was something better than this world. And so this land is not the land of the living. This earth is actually the land of the dead where everything is wasting away, right? Every good gift you've ever been given, at this point, if, you, if they were given to you in your younger years, they're probably already in the dump. There were, there were probably some item at a garage sale, but they're no longer where it satisfies your soul. And so in the midst of being where you're at, Peter says to these churches, let me remind you of the living hope that you have found in the person of Jesus, the one who has redeemed you. You know, you were once that person that was wasting away and there was no future hope, there was no eternal state for you that was pleasant. But that, that, that muck and the mire, the, the dirty, the sins that you had done, that you've actually helped birth into this broken world, yeah, Christ saved you from that. Christ took every bit of brokenness in your life and he's making something new in you and he put in you seed, not a perishable seed, but imperishable, life for eternal, uh, eternity. And so, yes, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, right? Like, to a suffering church, that, that, that probably felt tone deaf to some level. But no, he's like, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, but hey, don't tune me out just yet. The reason why you can praise Jesus in any time, in any state, 
is because he dealt with your sin issue and he's offered you new life, that you've been born again to a living hope. Anybody thankful for that today? Praise Jesus. And so um, because of this great news, because of this life, we can be fully, freely, forever forgiven. And it allows us to be able to do things like even suffer well. That's what Peter said last week. Peter says, hey, you know, even though for a little while you have to suffer, even though you may suffer for a little while, you, you know that what God is doing in you is he's allowing your praises to go deeper. You're allowing to experience more dependence on God than you do in, in your prosperity. And it leads you to see him more clearly and it allows your praises to go deeper. It allows your praises to go deeper. And when our text, uh, we pick up in our text today, we will see that in light of this new life, there's a conclusion to this. You know, because of this new life, because of this living hope, well, let me tell you something. And that's what we're gonna get to in our, in our um, 13 verses today. So Peter will encourage the church to live in such a way because of this new life. Anyone ever have a dog? Presently, now, past? Uh, you, you may have a dog, and, and uh, we always had one in, in the Wickham household. At any point I can, in my lifetime I can remember, we either had a cat or a dog, but primarily we had both. And um, they're messy. They stink. They need to be let out. But I remember we had a cat first. And uh, we couldn't wait to get a dog. We, we so desperately wanted a dog. I was like, Mama, please, 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 we want a dog. And I still remember this time. It was Sunday after church. There was a guy in our church who was going to the Marine Corps, and he couldn't take his dog obviously with him. And so I'm outside with the, some other kids, and we see this guy walking with a dog. And this kid sitting next to me goes, yeah, that dog's actually being given to my grandma. I was like, oh, you know, that's... And then I get told, this is your dog. And so I was like, yeah, bye-bye, grandma. <laughs> you know, like, it ain't your dog. It's my dog. And, and it, was a shel- it was a Sheltie, which if you know anything about Sheltie, it's just the shorter, pudgier version of the Collie. The Collie's the Lassie dog. And this was Starbucks. He had purple highlights. Don't make any judgments. Um, but Starbucks, Starbucks was a great dog. And uh, periodically in the next 20 years, we had several dogs and several cats. And now my parents' backyard is a pet cemetery. You know, it was just like every time a uh, pet got cremated, we had to do some weird burial service. It was like... <laughs> Well, has anybody got any final words? It's like, this is weird. Let's stop. At some point, this is creepy. Um, but when I asked, when we were begging for that dog, what, what, you know, as kids, you're not realizing, is as soon as that dog came home, guess what it did? It went in the backyard and it took a, went to the bathroom. There was droppings. And you know what you, you do if you don't have a pooper scooper? You take two Meyer bags. One on one hand, and the other one's your collector. And you just, you gotta clean, you gotta clean it up. You gotta let it out. You gotta get it washed. You gotta get it cleaned. You gotta feed it. You can't leave anywhere without taking it with you or finding some level of doggy daycare. Your whole life changes. There's, there's new things that, as you bring in a pet, that you don't necessarily think about. But you get a pet, your life changes. And so that's why I've been so adamant in these first two months of marriage we're not getting a pet. I don't want to do half of these things for myself, let alone a dog. (laughs) 
And yes, that all can be a good gift, but in that good gift, there are things that change. There are new elements of this life that you have to take and be aware of. And there are a lot of things like this in life, a lot of good things like this in life. Your, your house, your cars, beautiful gifts, right? But another show of hands, we're being very part, you guys are participating well today. Anybody like paying property taxes? Don't know anybody that likes to do that. But the house is a beautiful gift. But with it, there are things you, that change about your life. A car. You know, I got that Nissan Xterra, four-wheel drive, V6. It's awesome. But guess what's not awesome? 14 miles to the gallon. Anybody see gas prices lately? They're back up to north of $4. Does that bother anybody here? If that ain't hurting your pocket, you are blessed and highly favored, my friend. Um, but again, good gifts do alter our lives in, in different ways, shapes, and forms. And in the Christian life, it's just that way. You've been given a gift. You've been given new life. And in that, there are new things that you need to be aware of. There are new things that you've been called into. And in that, the beauty of the, the life of, in Christ, that's in Christ is that the things that you've been called into, these new expectations, these new things to be aware of, aren't miserable. They aren't miserable. There's, there's a living hope because of these things. And um, it doesn't mean Christians don't, uh, are void of pain and heartache. No, that stuff still exists, but it's still this idea that what Jesus calls us into is the fullness of life, that we would live life as it was intended to be lived. It's as if when the psalmist says that the boundaries have fallen for me in pleasant places. That the parameters that God put in, you know, marriage like this, sex like this, parenting like this, all those things, money like this, serving like this, he's not robbing from us. When, when, he, when he sets the structure on how to live this life, they have fallen for you in pleasant places. When you look at the word of God, the way he has lined it up, and then if you were to venture outside of those lines, then you can experience the real heart, heartache and pains of sin that God never wants or intends for you to actually live in and experience in. The parameters that God gives his followers are always, always, always for our good. And so with that in mind, if you have your Bibles, let's uh, look at our text this morning. It'll be up on the screen, starting in verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for actions and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of the former ignorance, of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And so we have that word, therefore. It's there because it's referencing back to the breadth of Scripture that Peter just got done writing. Right? He's talking about this, in light of this new life that leads you to more praise of God despite suffering, you should know some things about this life. That as you experience this life deeper and more fully, um, it ought to make us think differently. You see those words, preparing your minds for action. Uh, if you have the, the King James Version, which 50 years ago would have been the only right version, um, <laughs> there's different words here. It says, gird up the loins of your minds. Um, and so in this time and culture, men and women, they, they would wear robes, right? That's just the way they dress in, in, in society and public. And, and if a man was going to go into war, what he would do is he would roll up 
so he wouldn't trip over his robe. It was a, what, what Peter is saying in this moment, he's saying, get ready for war. Get ready to take war in your mind. Get ready for action. I mean, that's why the English Standard Version says, be ready to take action. But, but there's this real element, like, like, don't just fall short of action. What Peter is getting them to say, there's about to be a war of the mind that's going to go on in this new life in Christ. Because there's going to be all these lies, going to be all these things that come at you in the Christian faith that, that really try to get you to be off course. And you have to combat those things. I, I think for far too often in, in our, our, our Christian world, we've been so scared about, about being offensive. We've been so scared about, you know, tiptoeing around things. And it's like, you know, there's a real idea that we have to be ready to fight the lies that are perpetuated in our culture and society. We have to be ready to defend ourselves. That means we don't just accept all people's truth as truth. Like, that's just not real. Relativism's a load of hogwash. Right? Just because someone says, I feel that this is true, doesn't mean it's actually true. One of the commentaries I'm using for this series is... Um, done by a scholar named R.C. Sproul. And R.C. Sproul said, within this time of human history, he said this, this time of history could be best characterized as anti-mind. We're living in a state of anti-mind. And what he means by this is, I'm not saying anti-educational. He's like, I work at a, he's passed away now, but at the time of his writing this, he says, I work at a seminary. I work with master's level students, PhD level students. He goes, there, there are people that are really devoted to study. He goes, and, and we have, intellectual thoughts and philosophies and, and all this. So I'm, not, I'm not saying that, but I'm saying anti-mind. You know, people are really politically charged. They have opinions. So I'm not saying anti-opinion, anti-educational. He said, I'm saying anti-mind. And he said, here's my example. He goes, I'll put a proposition up in the classroom you know, with these high-level educated students. And he says, what do you guys think about this? He goes, I'll have a student raise their hand and say, well, I, don't, I feel as though the, the, that's wrong. And he says, great, but I wasn't asking you how you felt. I was asking about what you thought. We live in a society that worships feelings. And, and you don't need to demonize feelings. You don't need to act like they're not there. That's not overly helpful. But we do, there's an element where Paul does say in the New Testament, take every thought captive. I think the, the, the Christian life is going to require us to be thinkers. It's going to require us to combat thoughts, lies, and be ready for that. Because eventually what the, heart, what the mind knows to be true will penetrate to the heart. Right? And so it starts with a renewing of the mind, the book of Romans would say. Be ready to combat thoughts. Be ready to be thinkers. Be ready to go to war in the mind. And so for millennia, and uh, for millennia in different cultures and societies and kingdoms, people have tried to dismantle the truth of Christianity. They tried to say things like the, the scriptures aren't reliable. Well, it's just written by, by man, right? And certainly there's probably some error there. But hey, what do we know about 2 Timothy? We just went through that series, right? All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So yes, you have 40, over 40 different human authors on multiple continents over the course of 1,500 years, and yet they're all testifying about the same triune God. Why, how? Because there really is one ultimate author 
the rest of these humans are just scribes. They're just penning the words that are being told to them. And so the thing that our minds do need to grasp, the thing that we really need to take hold of and not waver from, is this idea of what, what Peter continues on, that Jesus' grace is really enough. Because I think that's the thing that plagues so many different people. More, more Christians buy the lie or, or the, the lie that Satan wants to get them to, to waver from is that Jesus' grace wasn't enough. And yet Peter here says, hope fully. Not hopefully, not like a maybe, not some optimism. No, he says, set your hope fully. Those words are separated. Take this to the bank. Never waver from this. Well, what should I never waver from? The grace that is yours in Christ Jesus. The lie the enemy wants you to believe is that Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection was not enough for you. Some of the lies and the temptations that the enemy would want you to believe is, is that your identity is, is, is sinner, enemy, outsider, stranger. And yet for the believer, the one who's been redeemed by Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, born again to a new living hope, you're no longer those things. You are no longer outsider, but you're insider. You're no longer stranger, but your family. You're no longer enemy, but your friend. These are the new identities that have been given to you because of what? The grace of Jesus. So it's not the message isn't try harder, be better to get yourself in on the inside. It's like, no, what Jesus has done fully for you has brought you into this family. You've received adoption as sons. But you have the full inheritance now as a believer. If you're a man or woman of God who's put your trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, you're fully, freely, forever forgiven. You have been given new life, not of perishable seed, but imperishable. This doesn't fade away. And so um, what I love about this idea of hope fully, well, was as I was going through the study this week, I started realizing we don't have the same English equivalent for that word hope. Because our in our English, how do you view hope? You're, you're hopeful, Maybe it will happen. It's this kind of almost blind optimism of, okay, maybe this will turn out the way that I'm hoping it will. We have a hard time thinking about hope outside of that situation, or outside that circumstance, right? That it's a maybe, hoping that it will happen. It might happen. But did you see this? This is incredible. What, what Peter says about hoping fully, you know, this Christian hope, we don't do this as blind optimism. Peter says hope fully on what will be brought to you. What will be? Peter doesn't open the door for, for optimism. He, he doesn't open the door for maybe. He says we have a hope that doesn't let us down. And so in a world and culture that's taught you to not let your hopes get up, I'm telling you, get your hopes up. Peter's encouraging you to get your hopes up. And one of the things his grace allows us to do is live differently. I remember one author says this. He says, when the grace of God sinks in, we will be amongst the least offended and most loving people. Um, for the last three weeks now, uh, my wife and I will go on a walk on Sunday morning. Karen and I will go out for a walk on Sunday morning. Yesterday, she says, so do we, do we get to go on a walk before church and now it's a tradition? I said, hey, it's happened like once. It's not a tradition. <laughs> well, it's becoming a tradition and we walk around Auburn Hills uh, at like seven in the morning, so be on the lookout for us if you're cruising around Auburn Hills. Um, but, you know, I was telling her about that quote on her walk this morning, and I said, how amazing would it be to actually literally live that out, though? To be amongst the least offended people. 
Because we live in a society where it's so easy to get offended. And like, again, two months into marriage, we're finding it's really easy to get offended with one another. Like already. And like we get defensive and we want to argue. And like, it's about silly stuff. It's about silly stuff. Like, are we going to sleep in our master bedroom or the guest bedroom tonight? Like, who cares? <laughs> who cares, right? And yet, we, we, we put these positions up and these walls are so strong and it's like, back down. But if you realize this new life that has been given to you in the person of Jesus, and you've been forgiven fully, freely, forever forgiven, why do we get so uptight with other people? Why do we hold these, these, these guards up that are, that are so strong that we're unwilling to, don't offend me, I'm going to offend you, I'm going to defend myself. And I'm not saying be a, don't be a pacifist, but, but how easy is it for us to get offended? And we have this hope of this new life. And yet we find ourselves, again, getting into silly arguments and if this is what the grace affords us, if it allows us to live differently in this world, we don't have to fly off the handle. We don't need to hold grudges. We don't need to repay evil for evil. Why? Because Jesus has forgiven us. The grace that is yours in Christ Jesus, remind yourself of that. Hold this truth to be real in your life. Be gracious. Why? Because Jesus has been gracious to you. Why? I don't need to be so defensive with my wife is because Jesus has been gracious with me. And so in the way Peter is quoting in the Old Testament here, uh, in verse 16, you see that word holy, you know, God being holy, so that word holy just means to be set apart, to be different. And, and so God said that to the nation of Israel. He says, be holy as I am holy, or for I am holy. And so what is God different from? Well, he's different from Humanity. He's different from the people he created. He's set apart in that way. In fact, in Psalm 50, one of the things that God says to the nation of Israel, he says, one of your big problems was that you thought I was just like you. One of the biggest problems you had was you thought I was just like you. Um, Anne Lamott says that if your God never disagrees with you, you're probably just worshiping a self-idealized version of yourself. Right? If God never disagrees with you, if your God never disagrees with you, more than likely, guess who's God? You are. Your way's always right. But God is different from us. His ways are not like Isaiah 55. You, my, my ways are not like your ways. My ways are higher than you. And so if God is holy, separate, distinct from his people, in the same way, we've been called to be holy, as God is holy. Well, can you be like God? Can you be perfect? Well, no, God's not asking you to be perfect, but he says, in the same way that I'm only distinct from humanity, you ought to be distinct from the world. There ought to be something different from you. Why? Because the grace that has been given to you in Jesus. Fix your mind on that. To be separated from the, the rest of the world, to be separate from the rest of the world. And, and so in these few verses that we have, you know, verses 13 through, through 16 up on the screen, what are ways that we've been called to be different. It means that we don't give in to worldly passions in your old ignorance, in, the, in your old ways. It means that we're supposed to be gracious people. We don't fly off the handle like everybody else. We don't hold grudges like everybody else, but we're willing to forgive. We're called to be loving people, a loving people. 
And after all, isn't that what Jesus said? What Jesus said to his disciples? He says, by this, a new commandment I give to you, people will know you're my disciples by what? By how you love one another. By how you love one another. This is how people will know that you're distinct. This is how people will know you're separated from the rest of the world. By how you love one another. This is our biggest distinguishing factor as believers, or at least it should be. And so Peter calls these followers in conclusion to this new life that allows you to live, think differently, to love and be gracious differently, to hope differently, to live differently, and not give in to the passions of the flesh because you've been called to be a holy people. This new life, this thing that's been brought to you, here are some of those expectations. Picking back up in verse 17. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you are ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. And so along that lines of holiness or, or the call to be holy, Peter makes another admonition. He says, you, need, you should, as, as, a, as a believer, one thing that's distinct from the rest of the world is that you have an awareness if you call on him who's, who's father, you call on him as judge who judges impartially, he says, you understand that there's a judge. You understand that there's a judge who's watching and seeing how you live and how you conduct your lives. And he's saying to this audience, you ought to have this reverence, this reason you should look and act different is because you have an awareness that the judge is watching. And the judge ultimately is gonna give you an innocent verdict. Like if you're a believer in Jesus, you have new life in him, you understand at the end of the day, you're gonna stand before a holy God and what he's gonna see is he's gonna see Jesus. He's not gonna see all that garbage of your past, all the sins and mistakes and, and heartaches. No, he's gonna see you clothed in the righteousness of Christ and imputed righteousness that was given to you. And he's gonna see you and he's gonna declare you as holy, right, and good. He's gonna say, enter the joy of your master. Right, so he, you understand that. But that doesn't give you a license to go live any way that you want to. Because that's not how the judge believe, the judge would say, okay, you don't understand the new life that's been given to you then. This time you'll live in such a way as one who is thankful for the sacrifice that was made. Right, like is it evidence that you understand what Jesus did, did for, has done for you? Why don't you want to run, out or run around and just be like the most thankful person because of what's been done for you? He says, you were purchased by the precious blood of Jesus. And I don't want you to gloss over that adjective. That blood was precious. It was precious. It was sinless. It was the only thing that could atone for the sins that you and I have committed. It was the only payment that God would accept. And I just began thinking this week, like, are these the things that mark my life as a believer? Are these the things that mark my life as a believer? Question that. You know, ask yourselves, like, do I live in such a way that I'm just so thankful of what Jesus has done for me? Is that evidence in how I love? Is that evidence in how I serve? Is that evidence in how I forgive? Those markers of your life. If we truly believe that the judge, almighty God, was watching us and seeing how we live our lives, would he see that we are people that are thankful that his son came and lived the life that we couldn't live and died the death we deserved? 
Like he gave us this life so that we wouldn't have to keep running to empty promises of hope and satisfaction. That we could fully trust in God. This new life ought to birth in us a thankful heart and that should be overflowed into how we live, love, and serve God and our neighbor. I'll pick back up in verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like flowers of the grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Peter points to this reality that, that as we become obedient to the truth, that it will in fact cause us to love. It will cause us to love. And not just any old love, but a love that's earnest, it's pure, it's real. Again, Peter's pointing back to this idea that you've been born again, this new life doesn't end. And I love how Peter calls you to love your brotherly, your brother with brotherly affection. And then he points back to the grace that you received. It's almost as if it's easy when you become a Christian, you've been redeemed and you love Jesus, that you can look around and you can see everyone else's brokenness. You can see the faults in everybody else. And how easy is it for us to become judgmental? How easy is it for us to become critical of those around us and, and maybe not want to actually love that person that may be struggling, that maybe isn't where you think that they should be? Or they should be further along. They, they, they shouldn't talk like that. They shouldn't do that activity. They shouldn't. And we have all these ideas of where somebody should be in their relationship with the Lord. And we make all these criticisms make all these judgments. And Peter here reminding them, love your brother with, with, with an earnest brotherly affection. Why? Because of the grace that's yours in Christ Jesus. You were once that person that needed that love. You were once that person that needed grace. And so why, why, would, we, why would we not be gracious towards other people? Why would we not be loving and serving towards our neighbor Because we ourselves have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. So do I have enough love in here to keep loving people like God has called me to? Yes, you do. Because this new life that's been birthed inside of you is not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. Peter keeps tying everything back to this idea that we've been born again. This new life, this living hope. The first seed we were born by is wasting away. Evident in what? The people die. The people die. But the truth, the seed that's been planted in us doesn't fade. The truth doesn't one day just collapse on itself. You see that in verse 25? The word of the Lord remains forever. What a beautiful promise. In a world where everything else is wasting away and you can think, what am I supposed to hold on to? What's going to take real root in me? The word of the Lord, the thing that's going to make you obedient, the thing that's going to make you love and be gracious and be thankful, all that is going to come because the word of God is becoming real and rooted and planted in your life and it's going to produce fruit. It's going to produce fruit that would remain. And so yes, your ability, the fuel to love ought to be a never-ending source. It's a never-ending source uh, because of what Jesus has done for you, what Jesus accomplished for you in his death, burial, and resurrection was that he dealt with the cosmic gap between you and God. 
that once alienated you. That bridge that couldn't get you back by your own efforts, that bridge was built by the precious blood of Jesus. And this promise of grace is held sturdy because the bill was paid in full. When Jesus went to the cross and he left the grave, that was dealt with, accomplished, done, paid for. And so because of this, because you now have this living hope, why would conflicts be something that you aren't ready to reconcile? Maybe you're here this morning and you say, hey, you know what? I have this conflict with a brother or sister in Christ and I just want to hold on to it. Hey, the longer you hold on to it, the longer you won't be free. The best quote I ever heard on forgiveness was um, forgiveness is letting a captive go free only to find out that you yourself were the captive. You're holding on to, holding on to a grudge, holding on to conflict. That's not doing anything to the other person. It's doing something to you. And Jesus affords you, hey, I've forgiven you. Why won't you just forgive this other person? You have new life. You don't have to live this way. You don't have to, you don't have to insist on your own way. Why would we get too caught up in this world? Why would we allow suffering to bog us down too much? Man, we are passing through. Again, there is no home for the living in the land of the dead. Death has lost its grip on you if you are a believer in Jesus Christ this morning. The words of the Apostle Paul, Philippians 1, 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. This new living hope that Jesus has given us, uh, who have a relationship with him, means that the worst thing that can happen to you, i.e. death, is now a gain. You You have a hope that this world can not touch. It's been given to you by what? The precious blood of Jesus. Not things you've done, said, hoped for, wished for, but what Jesus fully accomplished for you. And so if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, I want to make that invite to you right now that you could forever have that debt canceled. The thing that's alienating you from God, the thing that has um, plagued your life, now and forever, could be dealt with now and forever. That you could have this new life. And yes, this comes with the expectations, but I'm telling you, the expectations that Jesus gave to the Christian and the thing that he empowers you to be able to do it with has fallen for you in pleasant places. I'm telling you, there is no better life than the life that Jesus has called us into for those that would call themselves sons and daughters. And so it's confession and repentance. To confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, you would be saved. No magical prayer, magical words. An honest confession that Jesus, you are Lord of my life. And so if you have questions with that further, I'd love to talk with you afterwards. I'll be here for a while. So don't leave without making that decision today if you never have. Let me pray for us.